Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Mark, the 12th chapter. We're going to be picking back up in our nice, slow, steady walk through the book of Mark. And uh, today we find ourselves here in the 12th chapter in something that I, I'm honest, we could probably spend three or four weeks on just these first several verses. Uh, so we'll keep a close watch on the clock and make sure the preacher doesn't go long. But uh, we're going to talk about some things that really are uh, apropos. They are culturally relevant. They're the sort of thing we could understand. And, and uh, had we been in that moment and had we spoken the language at the time, um, this would sound like today. Much of what was going on there and then would sound like today. I think most of us could agree that today's political climate is petty and nasty and full of little gotcha comments and, and excited about any soundbite. It can be twisted any way you like, and, and it makes it hard to, to pay attention to find the real story most of the time. And in Jesus' day, the center of politics and the center of all that intrigue would have been Jerusalem and in particular there at the temple. So as, as the church of today and, and as the people of today go back and forth and, and uh, we, we disagree about small things and make them into big things and, and uh, major on the minors and are obsessed with the petty, this is exactly what was going on there. The difference, the difference is that at that time, the difference could get you killed. Uh, the difference could lead to revolution. Uh, a difference of opinion could lead to people being crucified or flogged or fed to wild animals uh, or run out of the temple itself. So the stakes were high. So as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, being declared Hosanna, uh, recognized as Messiah, it's led to some conversations on the Temple Mount uh, where Jesus is being called into this meeting and these people are coming and challenging him here and, and there really is an attempt at this moment to find out who are you allied with, who's your allegiances, and how can we trip you up. So with that background, with that setting, uh, let's go to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be picking up um, on the 13th verse today. So Mark 12, we're going to go 13 to 17 um, with our initial look into this. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are faithful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he, Jesus, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. To whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were utterly amazed at him. In this particular moment, uh, it's rich. A lot is happening. So let's take a look at it. We're going to look at uh, three primary things this morning as we go through it. First of all, word games and gotcha questions. That's what's going on. There's a lot going to it, so let's take a look at what are they and exactly what did it mean to the people of Jesus' day. Let's get in their mind and see it from their point of view. Secondly, 
What's going on with this nagging Caesar's comment? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, to God what's God's. What's going on? What's that mean to them? And what do we do with it here in the 21st century? And then finally, how we Jesus people must determine to disagree well. Um, just, just by a show of hands, this little moment of exercise, how many of you have ever been in a disagreement with somebody that you love or even like? Has that ever happened? Man, Thomas, your hand went up really, really fast. It's astonishing. Not astonishing that that would happen, but that you do it up to. No, but seriously, this happens. We disagree with the people we're closest to. That's normal. And so for Christians, how do we disagree in a way that's God-honoring and respectful of the people uh, whom we love and that we're in relationship with where we find ourselves in disagreement? So that's what we're going to be looking at. The pettiness, oops, sorry, the, the word games and gotcha questions is really where this starts. As Jesus is um, entering into this moment uh, on the Temple Mount, he's already been questioned in the chapter before by Pharisees. He's been questioned by uh, the Sanhedrin. He's been questioned by different priests. This particular moment, um, it's all going to get ratcheted up. The dialogue is going to get more intense. The questions are going to get more intense. This particular question that they ask him about, uh, should we pay taxes or not, blah, 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 blah. This whole thing is really oriented around two political parties, the Sadducees um, and the Pharisees, uh, particularly the Herodian Sadducees and the religious Pharisees. So the questions that come to him are going to be deeply contemptuous um, uh, and disrespectful. You can hear the disrespect in their tone. Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but treat the word of God. It, 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 what they're doing is they're, that, that's what we call buttering up. You ever had that happen? Somebody comes up to you and they say, man, you, you're such a great person. You're the most fair person I've ever known. I've often said, you're just one of the greatest people you could ever meet in life. When somebody starts like that, you know where this is going, right? They're going to want something. Or they're buttering you up because they're about to criticize you. Or they're kind of setting the stage for where they want to go. You know it. And if somebody comes up and that's how the conversation starts, you recognize this is going somewhere probably not good or it's going to cost you something. This is, this is typical of human behavior. You know what's funny? It was typical of human behavior 2,000 years ago too. So those people that didn't have cars and the internet, they're just as savvy as you and I. They're just as smart as you and I. And the conversation is being set up for contempt just like it would be today. These rhetorical games that they're about to play are exactly like the kind we see today. They're going to, uh, in, the, in the chapter following, the verses following today, we'll be looking at next week or the week after, they're using little one-off examples and scenarios to, to skew things away from a normal conversation into this tiny little what-if, extremist positions rather than moderation. They're going to be uh, all-or-nothing fanaticism with radical implications, loaded examples to have their conversation on. And so what happens? These two groups, here's what they are. They're going to bring their loaded examples, the Herodians. The Herodians are the Jewish, um, ethnically Jewish people who have sold out to Rome. While their, while their DNA is, in fact, Hebrew, their lifestyle is much more akin to the Romans. They have turned their back on the true message of the gospel, of, of, the, of the law. They've really turned their back on what the temple genuinely represents as a place of sacrifice and submission uh, and, and love and worship of Yahweh God. And they really use it as a cultural identifier um, to, to, to say, oh, we're still Hebrew, we're still Jewish. 
uh, but we're Roman too. They were sellouts and traitors. Their king, Herod, um, was the one who his family line of Herods, there are several of them in a row, um, Antipas and, and others, and they have built the great temple there in Jerusalem. They have built the city up and made it what it is at that point in time. As a result of them building it up, they feel somewhat um, uh, deserving. They feel the people should be beholden to the Herodians because of what they've given them. The Pharisees are certainly beholden to them. The Herodians um, are the people, uh, secular and contemptuous, they're the ones uh, who had adapted Roman culture so far as they had even arrested John the Baptist and were holding him captive. The Pharisees hadn't done this, this is the Herodians, and they were doing it with the authority and the tacit approval of Rome. It would be Herod that actually kills John the Baptist in the midst of one of his uh, uh, lascivious parties that he was throwing there where his own daughter-in-law is provocatively dancing for all of his friends and in hopes of securing favor from her, he says, I'll give you anything that you want, even up to a half of my kingdom, to impress the people around him in pure Roman style. And of course, we know what that leads to is she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This behavior is Herodian, okay? But here's the thing about the Herodians. Rome likes them and tolerates them because they are, Rome says the Herodians are what all the Hebrews should act like. They should accept subservience to us, pay their taxes, and just take on our culture and quit being these, ethnic, not just ethnically Jews, but, but all about your religion of Israel. Submit to Rome like the Herodians. But the Herodians have power. They built the temple, and the Herodians have influence and power. So this is group one. We tracking with who they are? Now, the other one you're quite familiar with, and this is the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious ruling authorities. They are the ones made up of, they make up part of the Sanhedrin, uh, they make up those who rule the temple, the Levites and others. They are the religious authority of the day, and they are extraordinarily influential and wealthy. They are legalists with totally complete control over the temple mount and the lifestyles of the people who want to be God followers. But they are corrupt to their core. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great, but as soon as you open that tomb, there's rot and decay and filth and stink and disease. They are utterly misguided in what they pretend to be their religion before God. And this is where uh, these are the two people who are going to come to Jesus and are going to bring this question. And the question they bring is this, teacher, we know you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So what they've done is they're going to, this unholy alliance between Herodians and Pharisees who hate each other, hate. You think Democrats and Republicans today have some animosity? Nothing compared to these two groups. Genuine hate. But they're going to get together in a bipartisan attack on Jesus. And here's their intent. Jesus cannot answer either way. If he answers that you should pay your taxes, he is essentially identifying and, uh, and, and aligning himself to the Herodian uh, Roman system, saying that you should pay your taxes. Therefore, he's a betrayer to his Jewish people. He's a traitor just like the, the rest of them, like Matthew and Zacchaeus, who would have identified with the Herodians before coming to Christ. So as, as they're asking this question, if he answers, of course you pay your taxes to Caesar. 
It's his way of saying that the temple system and the, and the Jewish tax that we have for, for the temple and the people, that all that stuff has gone away, and now we must surrender to Caesar. If he answers, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, pay your, your taxes, render them unto God. And, and if he were to say that, now he would identify with the Pharisees and with the religious system, and he would immediately and at that moment become an enemy of Rome and therefore make it possible for the Herodians to execute him. As, as a rabble-rouser, as a revolutionary. The same, by the way, would be true of the Pharisees. If he said, pay your taxes to Rome, he would be a traitor to the Jewish system, and therefore the Pharisees could say, ah, oh, you're a traitor to us. We will kill you because you live in opposition or teaching in opposition to the law. So this question was an unholy alliance by two different sets of people, both of whom saw Jesus as a threat. You see the stage is set? And so they figure, we got him this time. The way they're going to do it, though, they're going to come to Jesus while he's teaching there on the Temple Mount. He, they're going to wait till he sees. By the way, he's teaching in Solomon's Portico, which is a, a kind of an amphitheater there at the Temple. As he speaks, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people can hear him all at the same time, with the, the stone behind him being polished, and it would just echo and resonate the sound. So they wait till Jesus is done teaching a huge crowd of people who are seeing him as Hosanna, as one of the greatest teachers who taught with authority and wisdom and application, unlike the Pharisees. And, and this, these words are from Mark, by the way. As, as Jesus is teaching, he comes to a pause. And here they come, the Herodians and the Pharisees, and they're on the stage. Hello, everyone. Hello. Good to see you all. We, we just have a question for the teacher. Oh, teacher, you're so good. You're so fantastic. You don't care what anybody says. You're always teaching the truth. Isn't he, class? Yes, yes. And everybody's on their side, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They, the people know something's up. And so they ask him this entrapment question. It was in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, that Jesus, engaging Pharisees before, had said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, Those people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It was another time Jesus was engaging those very same Pharisees when he made this comment, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus had been very clear about who these Pharisees were. He'd, he'd made no bones about it. Jesus had taken the apostles, remember? They had traveled with him all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, the very palace and the home of the Herodians, had gone right into the lion's den with them. His opinion about them was clear, and they knew it, and the people there in the temple knew it. This is a culmination, friends of all of the ministry he'd been doing for over three years now, was coming to this point. And he's speaking truth into all that they had seen and all that they had heard. Every healing, every message, every miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 3,000, all of these had led to this moment. The Herodians and the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead, and this question was supposed to get it done. And Jesus engages them in a way that can be somewhat um, difficult for us to understand. What does he mean, render unto Caesar? But at their time, when he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, Jesus wasn't evading their question. Jesus was actually putting a point on what was behind all of the question, on what really mattered at this moment. And so what happened is both the Herodians and the Pharisees, as well as the thousand or so people who were hearing this happen, and everybody they would tell, were now left with a decision. They had to make a choice. And they had to accept a fact as fact or reject it. 
And the central theme of the entirety of the book of Mark comes down to this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And you can accept that right now or you can reject that right now. And the Pharisees and Herodians, they want to take it off point. Jesus is going to bring it right back to the point. He is God. And he has the right to determine what the message is going to be and the right answer to that question. So that's where we find ourselves at this moment. So this nagging question that Jesus is going to bring up really has to be about Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. But he starts it off, of course, with a rebuke. Let's look at that real quick just so we remember where we are. (laughs) Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were utterly amazed at him. Now, utterly amazed is a way of saying befuddled, stupefied. There's really nothing to say here. It's that moment when you realize you've just been had. It's that moment when you realize there's no intelligent thing to utter I just need to tuck tail and walk away and hope nobody noticed. That's really what's happened at this point in time. Something that's funny to me, uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees have come up there on the portico to try to embarrass Jesus in front of everybody. And by doing so, they've made themselves very public and very very much the ones in control of the conversation. Remember when Jesus asked them just, just the week before, he said, answer me. Remember that? And he put them on the spot. And they're left, and they have to make an answer, and they can't. So what do they do? They leave, and they go back to the court of hewn stones. They call Jesus to now stand before the Sanhedrin itself, and and they say, we don't know. (laughs) That's their answer. That's what they've come up with. We don't know. And Jesus says, well, if you can't answer, then I'm not going to answer you either. Because they understand that to answer is to indict themselves. And now they're going to do it very publicly again. Again. It's like they just don't learn. And this time it's going to be worse because standing up in front of everybody, they, they've demanded a question. Jesus instantly turns it on them. He, he, he makes a criticism of them all. He goes, hypocrites, why do they do this to me? Somebody bring me a coin. Now, by doing that, Jesus has reasserted himself as the one who has the right to teach and be stage front. And these clowns on the sides now, they became the audience and, and the example again. And they walked right into it. It's astonishing. They really, they just... just don't get it. So Jesus says, give me a coin. And everybody knows what he means when he says, give me a coin. If he had been speaking of a temple coin, the currency that you needed to buy sacrifices there in the temple, it would have been a different lesson. And it would have looked like this. Render under God the things that are God's and render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. (laughs) It didn't matter what kind of coin they brought him, a temple coin or a denarius, a Roman coin. It didn't matter. But Jesus knew that if he used the denarius, it would make the point even more um, damning to the Herodians. And I think that's why Jesus probably chose it. But at that moment, they could have brought him a temple coin as a way of saying, we're in the temple of God. We only use temple coins here. But the people who would have brought it to him are the same one who just had the whip over their heads when he ran them out of that court a few days before. And so more than likely, this was a tense moment at that time. The point, though, really, uh, we look through all that, comes to this. When he says render, render is this. It's to pay, to render, to, to offer, or to submit. When you 
pay something, submit something, render payment. When you do that, you're taking what is something you control and giving it to another. It's a way of saying you have the right and the authority to take this from me. Does that make sense? Anybody else get bills in the mail? Thomas, again, there you are. I mean, right up there. I like this. So we get bills in the mail. And when the bill comes in the mail, what's it normally say? Pay this amount. This amount is due. It's due, you know, now, <laughs> or, or it's due at this particular date. You have a responsibility to render what you owe. If you are a citizen of Rome as a, or, or a subject of Rome, you had to render to pay to Caesar what Caesar demanded of you. Not that it was fair. It's just what it was. When the IRS sends you a letter, can you just ignore it? How does that work out for you? You laughed pretty quick on that one. I don't know what's the deal. You, you got to respond when the IRS sends you their letters. If you don't, they will certainly respond to you. And they don't have to be fair or equitable. They don't have to. They're a political organization. They get away with whatever they want. You do not. You are subject to their authority. Rome was a political organization. It didn't have to be fair. It demanded of you. And you had to render or pay to them. So Jesus says, render to Rome, to Caesar, what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. Let, let's take a trip over here to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. True worship. Now, that's translated several different ways. It's a confusing turn of phrase in the Aramaic and, he, and, and, and uh, Greek language when it's delivered. You could say, this is your reasonable behavior. This is your legitimate act of worship. This is an authentic response. Any one of those translations would be accurate. And across the past 2,000 years, whether it be from Latin uh, into English or from, from uh, Greek into Ethiopian, it's been translated slightly different. But it always means this. This is what is right, expected, and appropriate. So what do we render unto God? Our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not my will, but yours. Just as Jesus had said. Not what I want, but what God wants. Not what I think I deserve, but what God definitely deserves. What he has earned. And so Caesar is this matter of the coinage you carry. You owe to that civil authority what they demand of you, but you owe to God all. Um, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. As Jesus says this, he's responding to Pharisees, and he quotes from Hosea, which at the time was one of their favorite books. They were really kind of fighting about Hosea. Uh, it, was, it was just after the time of the Maccabees and all these new ideas and concepts of temple worship had come, and, and Hosea was a big deal for them. And so sacrifice and mercy and all, what does that mean? How much mercy do we offer people? And what great sacrifices must we bring to God and to the temple? So this is the hot topic of the day. And when Jesus quotes it back at him, he's throwing it back in their face. Go understand what this really means. What I want from you, my people, God is saying, I want your mercy. Mercy in this moment meaning I want your obedience. I want your humility. I want your loving other people and taking care of them. What I don't want is you constantly sinning and then showing up at the temple with your big sacrifice and making a show of it to make absolution for what you've done wrong. I don't want you living like the pagans all through the rest of the year and then showing up on the holy weeks and acting incredibly religious. What I want you to do is genuinely offer me your heart and your hands. 
walk humbly before your God. Justice, mercy, walk humbly before your God, as, as Micah had said. This is what God wants of you. Not for you constantly coming and making a big show of your giving in hopes that people will praise you, Ananias and Sapphira style. What I want you to do is, as the widow, give and serve and do with all of your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. Jesus is pointing back to the Shema. The Pharisees are trying to point back to a monetary system. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Make me wealthy. And in doing so, God will give you mercy because you've given us wealth. Are you seeing the contradiction? Are you seeing the fail that's happening there. Now, that doesn't happen today, does it? None of that's in our churches, right? We're totally innocent of this. We don't think that we can live any way we want and then show up on Sunday and, and play religion and then placate the God of the universe and, and you know make a punk out of the great creator because we've played his game and now he owes us. We don't do that at all, do we? No? Okay. You're innocent of that, and I certainly am too, so let's just move on. John Piper has uh, written some exposition on this particular passage. Um, and I'll be honest, I went back and forth about what, <laughs> what commentator to, uh, to draw from on this. You know, the, the neat thing about being a preacher is I get hours and hours to study these sorts of things. And um, so I'll tune out. for just, You can tune out if you don't care about this stuff for just a second. But for you theology nerds or history nerds, my favorite um, commentator is an ancient commentator by the name of Tertullian. Anybody familiar with Tertullian? Cool. Imagine a snarky, sarcastic genius who lived about 80 years after Jesus, okay? Tertullian is Roman to the core, and he comes to Christ because he used to love to go to the arena, to the uh, amphitheaters, and watch the gladiators fight and watch people be executed. He loved that sort of thing. Purely Roman. Tertullian... Um, Sharp tongue, incredibly sharp tongue. Here, here's what happened, though. Tertullian would go and he would watch people being fed to lions, killed by gladiators, all this spectacle of Rome. And he came to Jesus because he was so astonished at the way the dumb slave and the innocent little girls were being killed by wild beasts. And here's what they did. They would stand in the arena, and they would stand like Jesus did with their arms stretched, and they would sing praises to God as they were being killed. What? And Tertullian watched this over and over and over and said, wait a minute. This isn't good sport. There's something messed up about this. We might be wrong about them. I just don't think they're the monsters and the evil society destroyers that we're being told. What is the message that they believe that would lead to this kind of submission? How could they do that? And by the way, little girls, what is the matter with us? And so for Tertullian, it was, wait, wait, what is the message? And he turned his eyes to hear the message of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came upon him and miraculously saved Tertullian. And as Tertullian became a writer and an apologist for Christianity, he became, um, as it were, what they referred to as the great master. This was their terms, not ours. He became kind of the heir apparent there um, in North Africa uh, of the message of Mark and of Peter. And he became the loudest voice for Christianity. But he is a sarcastic and biting guy. He writes brilliantly. But he's kind of like the, the Mark Driscoll of his day, before Mark made a fool of himself. 
but, but he, he wrote in such a way that when you read it, you're like, wow, okay, yeah, I guess I need to hear that. That hurt, but I'll take it. Yeah, woo, that's harsh, but, but he's right. That's Tertullian. Tertullian had this to say. He said, um, and this isn't a harsh remark. This is just Tertullian being bang right at it. About this passage, Tertullian said, one freely gives to God precisely what one must withhold from political authorities, yourself. That is to say, your conscience and your very soul. They don't get you. They can take what you have, but they don't get you. Now imagine, a little later on, he says, we look up to heaven with outstretched hands because we are harmless, with naked heads because we are not ashamed. This is how he saw the Christian life, looking up to heaven and giving God our soul and our allegiance and our identity and our conscience. Caesar can have the body, but you don't get my soul. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and I'll render to God what's God's. Pretty neat, huh? Now, we Americans don't get that image, do we? What's the worst the government is probably going to do to you? What's the worst? They're going to what? Take your stuff? What? Send you to jail? You know, if you're a murderer, they might kill you. But can they take your soul? I mean, think about this. Can, can Barack Obama or Donald Trump take your soul? No. They might lead you to, down a path or whatever, but they can't take your soul. You might surrender your soul to a cause, but what we give to the government are the taxes and the obedience. We're great citizens, right? We live to be good citizens, so people see us and they want to, they want to know about the God that's in us. We keep the law, we comply, we're great citizens, but what we do not give them is our soul. Here's what Piper had to say about this, John Piper. There's three takeaways from this passage that he had encouraged Bethlehem Baptist to hear, I would encourage us to hear. Number one, everything that Caesar has and all of his rightful claims to authority are derivative from God. Now think about this. Um, in John 19, 11, it says... You have Jesus is responding to Pilate. Remember the question to Pilate? I can have you crucified. Don't you understand that? Jesus says, you have no authority over me that hasn't been given to you from above. <laughs> Do your best, punk. That's really where this comes down. Pilate understands, though. Pilate's trying to get out of this. Pilate's like, I, I do not want to execute this guy. Pilate recognizes, even in his Roman superioristic, imperial way of thinking. Executing this one is going to cost me. Pilate understands this is no ordinary Hebrew. And Pilate's trying to get out of it. He's like, are you the king of the Jews? Are you who you say you are? You know I have the authority to execute you now. To which Tertullian would have said, you just flogged me. Aren't you done yet? But, but Jesus says, uh, you have no authority except what was given to you by God. So Pilate's recognizing Jesus is claiming that Caesar's doing this and you're the proxy. God is allowing this and you're only the proxy. You see, the sovereignty of God is complete and absolute. Jesus could have stood up, clicked his fingers and been perfectly healed with the word of his mouth as he's going to do at the end, could have wiped out all of the armies ahead of him, dusted off his feet and said, I'm done with you people. You're just not worth it. And he could have walked away because that's the power he had. But he rendered to 
us an atoning sacrifice which leads to salvation. Wow. So at this moment, Jesus is basically saying, you, government, Caesar representative, only have authority because God's sovereignty allows it. I'll give you what I have to, but you don't get my soul and my conscience because that is God's. And if I have to render my body to you, fine. You, your authority, and this life is temporary. Eternity is what I make my decisions in accordance with. You get it? You see, that's the message. Shannon, what's this got to do with today? Pay attention. What are you rendering to the state? What are you rendering to God? And what are you wasting renderance on? What idols are you worshiping where you waste your renderance? See, everything the state has, everything the United States government has, as far as authority and power, is derivative from God. They only get it because God allows it. The second thing that uh, Dr. Piper had, had engaged um, with his church and we would engage today, the authority of Caesar is limited. Acts 5.29, listen to this. We must obey God rather than men. Hmm. Standing in front of a court of Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, Peter, James, John, some of these apostles are being brought before them, and they're going to be whipped and thrown into jail and told, don't you ever speak of this Jesus again. And in Acts 5.29, they've done it again anyway. And they're called before the court. And, and this court is basically saying, we're going to kill you. If you don't do as you're told, quit talking about this Jesus. It's done. He's dead. We executed him. And these apostles say, I'm sorry, we must obey God rather than men. <laughs> and these people are thinking, we're the court. We are the rulers of all authority, religiously and politically. And these guys will not respect us. They will not submit their souls to us. But that's what they're used to. Everybody else does. How come they won't? At this moment, they're ready to kill them. They want to execute them. They want to take them out in the court and stone them right under the view of Rome in the Antonia Fortress, right over the temple. But they don't because here's what happens. Gamaliel. Remember Gamaliel? Paul's teacher. By the way, if your teacher is in Rome or is in Jerusalem at this time, you are too. If your teacher is meeting in, in the Sanhedrin, you're right over there in the audience watching. Paul was watching this, okay? Paul was totally familiar with who Jesus was. This is no new thing to Paul. Paul was watching this take place. Don't be fooled. Paul wasn't some foreigner living off in Tarsus, and then one day he's on a road and gets called by Jesus and then had to go to Damascus and find out who Jesus was. No, 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 no. Paul was there watching all of this during the Passion. At this particular moment, uh, Gamaliel, Paul's great teacher, is going to say, wait a minute, if their message is from God, you can't kill it. If their message is false, it will die with these apostles when they finally fade out. Let them be the victim. Let's not us be held accountable by God for what might be the truth. You know, Wisdom is justified by our children. Let's see what happens. This is Gamaliel's advice. Interesting, isn't it? How tightly woven all this is that we miss. The authority of Caesar, though, is limited. There's only so much Caesar can do. They can take your money. They can take your freedom. They might even take your life, but Caesar does not have authority over your soul. That is a decision that you make either for Caesar 
or for God. I would go a step further, carefully. It's not just Caesar and God. It's Caesar, idols, and God. You see, Caesar can become your God. You could worship politics in the state and see it as your source of security, safety, identity, meaning. You could worship uh, your, your money, your house, your 401k, your retirement, your job. You can worship those ahead of God and decide, I'll worship God after these things are all in order. Then I'll render to God what's God's. So I'll render to Caesar and to my idols and then to God. But the one thing that you must be always mindful of, we never render to the state and to things, our conscience and our soul. That is God's. So the authority of Caesar is limited. But he does have a right. When you're a citizen of a nation... When you're a citizen of a country, of a county, we do have things that we owe that county. We all have expectations um, for safe roads and rules of law and financial fairness and the protection of the, of, the, of the state. We have expectations that if our house catches on fire, that the fire department's going to be there to put it out, who operate off of our taxes. We believe in liberty and justice for all. We believe in, in constitutional rule, and we want those things. And those things cost us of our treasure, Right? They cost you of your allegiance. You can't have anarchy and freedom simultaneously. You hear me, libertarians? You're you're listening to me, right? You can't say there's no rules, nobody can tell me what to do, and then expect that the government will take care of safety, security, the rule of law, financial fairness. It's an exchange, sometimes an unholy alliance, I understand. But that power of Caesar is limited to that realm. The soul and the conscience, what Tertullian saw, in those people willingly giving their souls, giving their bodies up while their souls were still going to heaven. That's the message. Caesar cannot take your conscience and your soul. That's something that you surrender and render. And then finally, Piper said, all of our submission to Caesar is shaped by our obedience to God and his sovereignty. All obedience to Caesar is shaped by that. Romans 13 says this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted and allowed by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For example... Paul continues to speak in Romans about this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no law against this. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime. Christian behavior? Let love be without hypocrisy. Romans 12, 9. Romans 12, 9 further. Detest evil and cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Romans 9, 21. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. There's a behavior pattern. We render to Caesar his. But because of God and his sovereignty, we have to obey God within the the laws of the state. When the state is opposed to God, now we have to disobey the state. Let me close with a couple of things like this. When we as Christians disagree, there's a way to do it that's good and godly. Now hear me just very briefly. Uh, we have, we've heard this, you've heard this from me for the past nine years. Uh, one of the best books you can possibly put on your shelves, read, and take to heart when it comes to conflict management is The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Fantastic resource for God followers. 
and it talks about how we disagree in a godly way. There's a, uh, what they call a slippery slope. It's a scale on how we engage in conflict. You will have conflict, by the way. Right, you know that, don't you? Okay. Now, married people don't, but other people do, right? <laughs> if Kim and I get to disagreeing over something, okay, the wrong thing to do is go, it's my way or the highway. That's childish. The right way is to look for areas where we can overlook, reconcile, negotiate, mediate, adjudicate, holding each other accountable, but coming to a way in the middle where we can maybe even defer to one another to figure out how we move past an impasse, okay? This is how Christians behave. If Christian conflict was always done like this, the rest of society would see us standing like this in an arena, They've been treated unjustly. They've been treated unfairly, and they took it. Huh. We might be doing the wrong thing. It might cost us. It might cost you to do the right thing, even if it costs your freedom, your fortune, your job. But when Christians disagree with one another, we do so in godly ways. What we don't do are the extreme responses of attacking or escaping, running away or assailing the other person. We have to come to the middle and find a way to compromise. Now, I do not have time today to go into all of the uh, ramifications of, of, of this particular book. But I believe uh, a way to, to break it down uh, is, what, is what the book has to say as the peacemaker's covenant. And it sounds like this. When Christians disagree with other Christians, okay? As people reconciled by God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are called to respond to conflict in a way that is remarkably different than the way the world deals with conflict. We also believe that conflict provides opportunities to glorify God, serve other people, and grow to be like Christ. Therefore, in response to God's love and the reliance on His grace, we commit ourselves to responding to conflict with humility. <laughs> wow. So Christians... When we find ourselves in conflict, resolution is approached with an attitude and a posture of humility. So that's how God settles conflict. That's how Christians engage conflict. When those Pharisees and Herodians were calling Jesus to that moment, they wanted to trip him up. They wanted to make him fail. They wanted to discredit and destroy him. And they brought a question that they figured would do it. And although Jesus was harsh with them because of their hypocrisy, the message is still this. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and we render unto God what is God's. What Caesar deserves and what Caesar earns and is owed by us is our obedience to our civil authorities until they violate God's law. But what God deserves is everything. Our conscience, our thoughts, our behaviors, our motives, our love. God deserves all of those. That's what we render to God. You're going to be in conflict as people. And what you render to conflict is godly behavior. Even if it costs you, we do the godly thing. And before we start to think, it's not fair if it costs me, I want you to think of all those people that Tertullian saw standing in the arena, rendering to Caesar what was Caesar's, I suppose, but rendering to God their souls and their consciousness pure 
unstained and righteous before their God. Conflict means we render to Caesar, to the law, to the court, to the legalities what it is owed, but we render to one another what God demands of us, humility and loving our neighbor as ourself. As our worship team comes up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do this. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Would you get before your Lord right now? Really, today's question, today's focus comes down to this. To whom are we offering our allegiance? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These words of Jesus are a test in this moment. Who do you love the most? Are your rights, are your treasures the most important to you? Or is your relationship with God where your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength is dedicated? And do we render to God with enormous humility every decision in our lives? Or are we holding on to our Caesar rights more than our God rights? This is tough. These are tough questions. As the worship team plays, I just want to ask you to ponder on that for just a few minutes in prayer. God, at moments like this, it's, it's important to remember your words there in that garden of Gethsemane where you said, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, you gave us an example of what it is to surrender and to submit, even our very will, to you. God, the time, talent, and treasure that we render to your work here on church and earth, on the body of Christ, all those things really are done as acts of worship and rendered to you, God. They're supposed to point to our soul being surrendered to you. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my desire, but yours is chief. God, I just pray that you would give us the humility and the wisdom to worship you with all that we have, all of our mind, our soul, our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Give us the discipline to be great citizens and great employees and great friends and neighbors because we've rendered all to our God. 
And Lord, give us the ability to see where we're coming up short and where we failed. Because recognition of where we're failing is uh, the first step towards being able to do what is right in the eyes of our God. To bring you glory and to proclaim your message so that everyone who knows us will speak well of us as they did of that, of that first church there in Acts. So God, these things we just submit to you as your children in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, our Messiah and King. Amen.